Hello and welcome to episode 1201 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. I'm not going to mince words here. We're going to talk about Shohei Otani a lot on this podcast, I think. I'm I'm not tired of talking about him yet. I hope listeners aren't tired of listening to us talk about him yet. In fact, I have some stats. I don't know whether our listeners overlap with Fangraph's reading audience precisely, but I'm sure there's considerable overlap. And Sean Delinar from Fangraph's was just telling me that so far this season, so since March 29th, Shohei Otani is not only the most popular player page at Fangraph's, he is the most popular player page by 5.3 times. <laughs> so <laughs> now that's double counting his hitting page and his pitching page, which are split roughly evenly in terms of traffic to those pages. So if you want to just count that as one, fine. He still has like 2.7 times as much traffic to his player page as any other player does. And so I got notes from multiple editors at The Ringer this weekend saying essentially we can't cover Otani too much. We can't overcover Otani. Not in like a cynical traffic grab sort of way, although I assume that Otani pieces do well right now and that's a consideration, but just because he really is legitimately that interesting and a sensation and there's so much to say about him and I don't feel like he has been overhyped. I feel like he has been hyped appropriately. So we will get to that shortly, but there was other weirdness and notable stuff that happened this weekend that we can at least touch on before that. And one weird event that I was watching live on Saturday night was the game between the Astros and the Padres. And you had told me on our last show of last week that the Padres were off to a lousy start this season. I hadn't really been following them that well. And so I essentially had my opinion not changed by you telling me how poorly the Padres had been doing to start the season. But if I had seen the final play of Saturday's game, that alone might have changed my opinion about the Padres. There was a walk-off infield fly ball slash pop-up. And it dropped behind Eric Hosmer, who was paid a lot of money in large part because the team thinks that he's better at defense and the numbers say that he is. Now, look, everybody has misplayed a pop-up at some point. I get it. I've never fielded a sky-high major league pop-up. I've never had to do it. I was a pitcher. Pitchers aren't supposed to catch those things for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, but I was happy to back (laughs) off. I didn't really care. Leaves Mm -hmm. the blame to somebody else. It's just a fluke misplay. But it is maybe, it's one of the worst ways to lose. Like, we could have a whole conversation. Maybe Friday's podcast will be, let's talk about all the worst ways to lose a baseball game. But <laughs> yeah, I was try. I, I don't know if you did the same thing, but I went to the play index and tried to find examples of other walk-off pop-ups. And all of the walk-off pop-ups I could find, and there are some, there, there are other ones. There was even one last season in a game between the A's and the Yankees, but that was a pop-up that was behind the infield. So Uh those are a lot more understandable. I found one where like Joey Votto and Jay Bruce and some other Reds couldn't make a catch on a pop-up by Brian McCann off for all this Chapman in 2014, won the game in Yankee Stadium, but that was also behind first base. The wind was swirling. It makes a little more sense, whereas this was Eric Hosmer charging at the ball. You'd think it would be easier to catch a ball in front of you. The ball dropped about 20 feet away from home plate. So it is not the first walk-off pop-up in even recent baseball history, but it is the worst walk-off pop-up I could find in recent baseball history (laughs) in that all of the other ones I kind of get. When when an infielder is running backwards, that's a hard play. This 
This is not a hard play. Yeah. I know there was some debate about whose fault it was or whose fault it was the most, because I think just about anyone on that side of the infield could have and perhaps should have caught the ball. But I think it's probably Hosmer's fault the most. Maybe he thought that the catcher was going to catch it. Maybe there was a failure of calling the play and assigning responsibility there. But it was an easier play for Hosmer, who was coming in on the ball and had a good view of it, theoretically, than it would have been for the catcher, who would have been all turned around and looking over his neck. So if we want to pin the blame primarily on someone, I suppose it would be Hosmer. But Kind of a a group effort failure on a play like that. And this was a game, so the Padres lost to the Astros. This was the only run of the game, which makes it all the worse. Yes. Uh, Astros beat the Padres 1-0. And this is a game where uh, the Padres starter, Brian Mitchell, technically this is his line, 5.230610. You think, wow, that's a lot of strikeouts. No. Six walks. (laughs) Six walks, one strikeout. I've been really interested in Brian Mitchell in the... I'm going to walk that back. I've been modestly interested... (laughs) in Brian Mitchell. He's no Shohei Otani, but Mitchell is a guy that the Padres essentially bought from the Yankees. This was one of the examples provided for when a team has bought a player, a young player. They they got Mitchell for the cost of basically absorbing Chase Headley's contract. That is not controversial. That is exactly what the Padres did because they wanted to see what Brian Mitchell could do as a starter. And so far, he started two games. He got a 4.22 ERA, whatever, that's fine. 10.2 innings, nine walks, one strikeout. I can tell you right now, based on those numbers, he's not going to be a good starter. That no. it's it's over. It's just not going to work. He's thrown fifty four percent strikes. He's Oof. got like no swinging strikes. It's just this is like we were talking about recently. This is just one of those indicator numbers where you don't need a big sample to know that. Nope, that's this is just we already know this is a yeah. this is a failure and. Similar to how we can already say about Chris Tillman with Baltimore. I don't know if you've looked at this. You probably haven't because who wants to look up Chris Tillman? (laughs) Probably right now, not even Chris Tillman. 9.1 innings (laughs) and two starts, 15 hits, nine runs, eight walks, three strikeouts. Is he fixed? No. Chris (laughs) Tillman not fixed at all. Orioles in trouble. Yeah. And you could say small sample and it is, but like if you take a good pitcher, you could look up probably any random stretch of that many innings or that many batters faced and you still wouldn't find a stretch in a good season where someone had a strikeout to walk ratio like that that's just saying unsustainable is is putting it too lightly so yeah, yeah that's that's not a good sign but yeah that Padres play was depressing it kind of reminded me in a way of that famous Astros play that is, you know, the gif is still floating around the internet of the, the one where, the, what year was it, 2013 ish? It was every year. The <laughs> yeah. At their lowest. yeah, but that one particular play where they were just throwing the ball all over the infield and missing it in a very Keystone Cops kind of fashion. This was that, except with fewer people involved in the play. And in theory, a veteran and a, a high salary high marquee player involved in the play and primarily responsible for the play, which maybe made it worse in a way anyway, not to make too much of one play. But ultimately, if you want to boil down what this season is likely to be like for the Padres, that would be a pretty good stand-in. And I believe they also have now lost Kirby Yates to injury, which doesn't really mean anything to most of you because, again, who cares? But he's one of their good relievers, and it looks like he's out now. So Uh just getting worse, only getting worse. 
All right, we also had a brawl. There was a brawl involving Yadier Molina, Tori Lovello, the Diamondbacks manager. Heated words were exchanged. Blows were sort of kind of exchanged. Not really. It's a baseball brawl. But uh, do you have any thoughts on what happened here? Okay, so I, did, I didn't watch this as it happened, uh, but I I have been reading about it because you mentioned it to me. I heard about it. I wasn't that interested in it at first because no one really did anything. It seemed like, oh, Yadier Molina took offense to something again. That's kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. But what it, what it seems like, enough people linked to me. There were some really weird-ass ball strike calls this weekend yes. in the Cardinals yeah. Diamondback series. Real bad ones, I'm sure. I'll be writing about them at some point because <laughs> they were legendarily bad. Yep. But it, it seems like Tori Lavello had Lavello Lavello. It's spelled Lavello, but I think it's Lavello. Yeah, Tori Lavello. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, Tori. Come on the pod. We'll talk about your ejection. <laughs> so it seems like he came out. He had already been ejected. He was complaining about balls and strikes. That's a no-no. This is extra innings, right? And it seems as if he'd been talking with the umpire in a heated way and was making conversation not with Yadier Molina, but about Molina, talking about how it seemed like Molina was getting more strikes than was deserved, which immediately that's funny coming from the manager of jeff mathis and this yes. is just this is baseball strategy so just let it go anyway mm-hmm. your team benefits from this too in the games that alex avila doesn't start but it seems like he was referring to molina as an mrfer which he uh which he said a few times and i'll, I'll read you the first paragraph here from joe trez's article at mlb.com short paragraph d-backs manager tori lavello doesn't deny using the vulgar word that set yadier molina off and sparked a benches clearing incident sunday at bush stadium but Lavello said Molina misread his intent, which was not personal. Yeah, you can't call a guy an MRF twice <laughs> on the field within hearing range and say it's not personal. That's, no. I understand that Lavello might have let his temper get the best of him. In fact, he definitely did, and I think that he's admitted that. But yeah, you uh, maybe maybe you expect someone to just be able to let that roll off his shoulders, but if you've spent any amount of time watching or reading about Yachty or Molina, you know it's it's not going to just roll off his back. He's going to take it personally, and that is a direct personal insult, even if it was not necessarily intended that way. Lovello in the wrong here. Usually, I take the side against the person who emotionally overreacts, but <laughs> I get it. I understand yeah. this one. Yeah. Another notable thing from this weekend, Giancarlo Stanton struck out five times in a game again. I was on Hang Up and Listen on Monday morning, and we talked about three topics. Otani, which we'll be talking about in a second. We've been talking about all year. Gabe Kapler, which we've been talking about all year. And Giancarlo Stanton, which really we haven't talked about this season because really there's no reason to talk about Giancarlo Stanton. But lots of people are talking about him or more accurately booing him if they're in New York. And it's very silly, I think. It's not unexpected for a hitter who is failing in sort of an obvious way, at least within individual games, to be booed, especially while the rest of the team is struggling and the Yankees have had some tough losses in both games and injury-wise. They've also had their vaunted bullpen come up short a couple times and blow leads. So it's been a rough stretch for the Yankees. I know everyone sympathetic to the Yankees' plight. But Giancarlo Stanton is not really the reason for that any more than anyone else. His line is strange, certainly. As we speak, he's batting 167, I think, and slugging 429. But if you look at it as a whole, he's basically been a league average hitter. He has a 98 WRC+. He has homered three times. He's doubled a couple times. 
ironically, when he hit two homers on opening day, everyone was saying, oh, the weight is off his back and the pressure's off now and the narrative that he can't succeed with the Yankees or whatever, he won't have to worry about that. Well, now he suddenly has to worry about that, but it's extremely silly, obviously. This is a case where a small sample should really just be disregarded. Yes, he struck out a bunch, but everyone has struck out a bunch this season. He's still hitting for power. He's going to be fine. It'll just take, you know, three good games for his numbers to look like they usually look. And he's, I don't know whether it's fair to say that he is habitually a slow starter, but April slash March has been his worst month historically. He's going to be fine, folks, and unless this snowballs in some way where it really gets ugly and he hates New York and New York hates him, there's just absolutely nothing to worry about here, and it's very silly that he is being booed at all. I mean, my philosophy about booing, obviously, you buy a ticket, you're entitled to make whatever noises you want within reason, <laughs> I suppose, and... and Booing is an acceptable noise at baseball games. I've never booed. I just don't really have the temperament or the personality to boo. I don't make a lot of noise in general, but it just always seemed counterproductive because it's like, why do you need to express disapproval? The player knows he's not doing something well. It's only going to make him feel worse, probably, and potentially press and play even worse, I guess, if the player is just not trying and it's obvious that he's not giving his full effort. Maybe you could say that chastising him for that could be a corrective kind of measure, but otherwise, if it's just a guy striking out because he's a high strikeout slugger, I never really understood the point of booing. It's just kind of this mob mentality type thing. I'm going to protest this talking point by i don't even <laughs> people are talking about john carlos Sanchez because he's striking out i don't yes i don't care <laughs> yeah no neither do i it's a very popular talking point but if anyone is actually worried legitimately worried about john carlos i see no reason to yet in fact his contact rate despite his strikeout rate being up his contact rate is barely below what it usually is or at least his outside of the zone swing rate his chase rate barely below his career average. This is just too small a sample to concern yourself with such things. Yep. You have anything else? No, not really. I mean, there's besides Otani, which is going to be the entirety of this podcast <laughs> and all subsequent podcasts. Also, Mike Trout hit a home yes. run. But then, he did, I mean, yes. there's what? There's just things like Garrett Cole seems like he's better now, which is only yep. kind of interesting because everyone expected he would be, which is also interesting because... It was only a few years ago that we were all talking about how the Pirates were on the cutting edge, but then all of a sudden someone had to leave the Pirates to get better. But I don't know if that's even necessarily something that's that interesting, but in the early going, it does indeed. It seems like the Astros have Garrett Cole throwing not necessarily fewer fastballs, but fewer sinkers. Why throw fewer sinkers? Because hitters like sinkers. So that's basically it. But also he just dominated the Padres, which doesn't really count for reasons already discussed in this podcast. Eric Hosmer's ground ball rate is 57%. <laughs> yeah, and Bryce Harper is the best hitter in baseball, non-DD Gregorius division. So that's uh, <laughs> exciting, but not surprising. I'll say this. I will counter the Giancarlo Stanton conversation point, which I understand you're in New York. I don't know if that means that you are more vulnerable than most to uh, <laughs> being aware of the New York area talking points. But mm -hmm. anyway, you're in New York. People are complaining about Giancarlo Stanton, who's great. I think this one has gotten a little quieter, but so far, Byron Buxton batting 185, slugging 222. His WRC Plus is 5. He's got zero walks. 
He's got nine strikeouts. I don't know if anyone's paying attention to that one, but Byron Buxton is maybe never going to just normalize, just like find a level. He's always going to probably, he's going to be 36 years old. He's going to be the best defensive center fielder in baseball, best base runner. And then for the first half, he's going to bat like 140 and everyone's going to say, I don't know if he's going to figure it out. And then the second half, he's going to like have an OPS of 833. Everyone's going to say, look out, Byron Buxton, breakout candidate in his age 37 season (laughs) in whatever year that is, like 2029. Well, he hasn't dug as deep a hole as he did at the start of last season, I guess. What was he hitting <laughs> like on this date last year or at an equivalent point of last season, which I suppose started a little later? I mean, that was like not only was he not hitting, but he was not making contact with the baseball and it was dire. And that was before we saw him have the second half of last season that he had. So we know now that he's capable of that kind of performance. Yeah, and as long as we are talking about breakout candidates or non-breakout candidates, uh, here's a a fun fact from early Reese Hoskins, who uh, last year had a ground ball rate of 31%. So far this season, 10%. 10% ground balls, Reese Hoskins. Hitting everything in the air. Hitting, I don't know, everything hard. What's he doing? Yeah, he's batting 440. He's pretty good. Yeah, is pretty good. So Buxton has played seven games through his first seven games last year. He was hitting... 069, not nice, 100 OBP, and 103 slugging with 17 strikeouts in 29 at-bats. So it's better. <laughs> improvement. <laughs> yeah, this is the Byron Buxton first week of April breakout, relatively speaking. <laughs> Sticking with, I guess, some early numbers, we do have Ian Happ, who still, I mean, it, it takes a while for these things to get back to normal but Ian Happ has batted 30 times so far this season he struck out 17 times that's too many that is a that's 57 percent strikeouts he's got five hits one home run this is a guy who had one of the biggest springs or at least it seemed like he had one of the bigger springs I don't really know what wound up happening but if you need further evidence spring training is stupid in a ways of everyone's time Ian Happ was great Shohei Otani was terrible on both sides of the ball doesn't seem to matter Shohei Otani is the best player in the world all of a sudden (laughs) non-teammate division and I don't usually, I don't care about barrels so much as like a stat cast statistic, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I figure what's the difference between a barrel and a home run, basically. We already <laughs> have a we already have a word for this. It's home run. But <laughs> I did, uh, I have enjoyed that Xander Bogarts has already tied his 2017 number of barrels, uh, six. Yeah. He's got two home runs this year, which whatever, that's fine. He hit 10 last year, but Xander Bogarts is batting 368. He's slugging 711. He's hitting the ball really hard he was supposed to hit the ball really hard when he was coming up through the minors and he's had a Mm -hmm. weirdly valuable major league career but there was all this talk that Bogarts is playing through injury last season I have no reason to doubt that now unfortunately he is injured again in a different way but the fact that he's already caught up to last year's number of barrels that that actually is pretty cool to me and his grand ball rate has plummeted from last year's rate of 49 percent it is lower now he's trying to be a power header Yeah, Bogarts is really good, and he was kind of a a popular breakout pick, I guess you could say, before the season. One of those guys who just, on principle, I refuse to call a breakout pick just because he already has been so good. Like, 2013 to 2017, Bogarts was the, let's see, eighth most valuable shortstop in Major League Baseball. He was really good, but... Of course, a lot of that was just his position and his defense and his base running league average hitter over that span. So I guess it's fair to call him a breakout candidate if you think he's going to take a big step forward offensively. And he was playing at 
a breakout type pace last year before he got hit on the hand or the wrist and then he tried to play through it for the rest of the season and his power sort of evaporated from there so it was easy to project that you could just kind of extrapolate his pre-hit-by-pitch numbers over a full season and he'd be really good again and that does seem to be what's happening now and the Red Sox are off to an excellent start in part because of Bogarts being great and hopefully not being seriously injured now but yeah that's been nice to see so we've been stalling here as a way of not dwelling entirely on Shohei Otani I don't want to wear out the topic of Otani because we do have a whole season ahead of us and of course we've talked about him plenty already but I just don't know that there has been a more compelling player-focused story in baseball the whole time I've been following the sport. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I've certainly seen better players or more valuable players or at least better and more valuable than we can say with any certainty that Otani is. I mean, we've seen Bonds be the best hitter ever. We've seen Roger Clemens at the end of maybe the best pitching career ever. We've seen the Sosa Maguire home run race. We've seen Ichiro set hits records. We've seen Bryce Harper be hotter than any hitter has ever been over a period in 2015. We've seen Kershaw and Trout and all these guys get off to historic starts, Pujols, etc. I don't know that I've ever just been as delighted by a player, at least early in his career, as I am by Otani. And he's really just fulfilled every fantasy that we had about him in a period of about 10 days, which doesn't mean that he will continue to fulfill those fantasies, but he has essentially provided the proof of concept. We now know that he can do what we've dreamed about him being capable of doing. And the history of Otani on this podcast goes back quite a ways. I was recently hip to the fact by the Effectively Wild Wiki project that the first time Otani was mentioned on this podcast was all the way back in episode 350. That's December 2013 he was mentioned. Sam and I were interviewing Jason Koskari, who was and is a baseball writer for the Japan Times, and we had him on at the time to talk about Masahiro Tanaka, who was just being posted at the time. He was the one who was causing the latest craze about an NPB player. And we asked at the tail end of that episode, who's next, essentially, who's the next NPB player who will cause this kind of craze? And one of the players that Jason mentioned way back then was Shohei Otani. And ironically, Jason said, and I'm quoting here, he was talking about how he was pitching and hitting. And he said, quote, eventually he'll pick one of those, hopefully, and he'll be really good at it. (laughs) Well, he never picked one of them. He kept doing both and got great at both of them. And at the time, it was weird and cool that Otani was doing what he was doing, but he was coming off his age 18 rookie season in NPB. He was doing it all. He pitched in 13 games. He played 54 games in the outfield. He made more than 200 plate appearances, but he wasn't really great at any of those things. It was impressive that he was just holding his own at all as a rookie and as an 18-year-old and as a two-way player. But he had a higher-than-average ERA, a lower-than-average OPS. It was not at all clear that he would go on to be great at all of these things, and obviously he has. And 
We've been following him throughout the years, particularly in 2016 when he just became the best hitter and best pitcher in Japan and had a 10-plus war season in a league that has a 143-game schedule. That was, I think, when really the anticipation ramped up, and I think it was episode 650 maybe we had Jason on again. No, it was 921 quite a ways later that we had Jason on again to just talk exclusively about Otani. Anyway, we've been daydreaming about this guy and salivating over his stats for years at this point. And how many times does the hype for something like that actually live up to the billing? I mean, the player actually vindicates all the anticipation. It's kind of incredible because over these past few years, we've thought, well, maybe he won't be posted, especially when the new CBA was put in place and we learned that he just wouldn't make any money if he came over before he was 25. So there was uncertainty about whether he'd come over at all. Then there was the scare about his elbow, and maybe he's hurt, and he missed a lot of time last season as it was. And then there were the spring training struggles this year, and people talking about whether he'd start the season in AAA. And then here we are, and he's doing things that we have never seen done and haven't been done for a century. Okay, I don't want Shohei Otani to retire today. (laughs) However, if he did, he would already be a baseball legend because he, just for the fact of having met the hype and taking yep. a perfect game through 19 batters after homering yep. in three consecutive games, including his first game at home. Like his, his first start against the A's was, was good. He had a, a good game, but because of the home run, the three run home run that he allowed, the final numbers didn't look super impressive. They just looked good. And now he was dominant. So now we're looking at a guy who's got a bunch of strikeouts, barely any walks, and he's great on both sides he's obviously the angels leader in pitching war and he's tied the team lead in hitting war which is exactly what everyone's fantasy of Shohei Otani was going to be tied with Mike Trout in position player war that's pretty good yeah but the problem I guess if there is a problem you still because it is only weekend we were all prepared to say that if Otani had a bad week or a bad week and a half just like spring training well it's not going to matter he's still getting used to it he's still adjusting and then we you have to give him at least the first half you have to give him at least a full season and you know, this is, I have to imagine he's not going to finish with a WRC plus of 278. He's probably not going to finish with a, well, he could finish with an ERA of 2.08. I really don't know. He's super good. Yeah. And he pitched so well against the A's. Even again, without really having a very good slider, he was just a two-pitch pitcher for the most part against the A's, and he was completely dominant. But the fact that he has exactly met the hype of being fantastic, absolutely fantastic, arguably the best on, on both sides it almost unfortunately validates the impossible standards that we put on players like, I shouldn't say players like this, but any the next <laughs> exciting player who comes yeah. up, we expect amazing things. And then when you have someone who actually meets it, that's great. It's not like anyone is just saying, well, of course he's doing this. This is exactly what we thought. Because I think that when we set those impossible standards at the same time, we're, we're acknowledging like, well, they're not going to meet them. So we're just setting ourselves up to be disappointed, but we're still setting ourselves up to be disappointed and now we're going to be more likely to hold the next player to the same kinds of standards which isn't really fair but i guess bad news next amazing 18 year old japanese position player pitcher hybrid that we're gonna see come over in five (laughs) years we're gonna do the same thing maybe we'll expect even more yeah i think back to how excited i was for like pat vendetti or Christian Bethencourt (laughs) (laughs) and I feel sorry for myself back then getting excited about those players when they were just pale shadows of what we're watching now and I mean I don't even know 
the stats are so impressive that it's hard to know which one to cite. But I'll say that, you know, and I wrote this in a just sort of general appreciation of his recent performance for The Ringer in an article that's up now. He was worth one war over this past week. So he had a one war week. And it's maybe hard to know how impressive that is. Obviously, it's impressive because if you prorate that over a full season, it would be by far the best season ever. So it's impressive, but it's not like unheard of or unprecedented. I had Fangraph's founder and proprietor, David Appleman, look up one war weeks for me. Now, it's kind of hard to do this because war isn't really designed to be a daily or a weekly stat. So he had to strip out defense for one thing, which is kind of okay because Otani didn't play defense during this week. But between that and also it's just hard to look up like a span of any seven days, like any week-long span. So he did it like week splits, like basically Monday through Sunday. So if you were to look at any span of seven days, there would be more one war weeks. But going back to 2002, which is as far back as he could go, there have been 13 one war weeks by 10 individual pitchers. So that's less than one per season and 68 one-war weeks by 57 individual position players. So that's about four one-war weeks. So uh, that's pretty impressive on a per-season basis. It's not common. It's, it's something that doesn't happen all the time. And obviously, Otani had his one-war week in a completely different fashion from anyone else. So every pitcher who made that list made two starts in that week. Every position player who made that list both didn't DH, played an actual position, and played at least six games and got at least 21 plate appearances, whereas Otani in this week played three games as a DH, got 14 plate appearances, and started one game as a pitcher. So he did it completely differently from anyone else does it. And that's the potential of Otani. That's what he can, in theory, do in one week. One week not even playing as much as he potentially could, but taking it easy on him, starting him once in that week and giving him the buffer, the rest day on either end of the start and just giving him three starts at DH. He faced Corey Kluber in one of those games, still homered. So that's kind of a demonstration of what he can do, not what he will do every week, obviously, but what he can do, what he did do in one of the most entertaining weeks I can remember. And he just totally like made Angels games and specifically his outings and plate appearances appointment viewing for me. Like this early in the season, especially, I don't usually plan what game I'm going to watch or like look at the lineups ahead of time. If anything, I have baseball on in the background and I'm just sort of letting it wash over me. But this year, I've been looking up Angels lineups hours in advance. I've been tuning in in time for first pitch. I've been following on at bat when I'm not watching. And of course, it sweetens the deal that I get to watch Trout and I get to watch Simmons and maybe I get to watch Garrett Richards and the rest of a pretty entertaining team on days when I'm watching Otani. But Otani is 
the highlight for me. Even with Trout on the same team, I'm kind of like, all right, let's let's get through these at-bats. Just get on base or make an out or whatever you're going to do. Get me back to the Otani spot in the lineup, please. And you can already see how much Otani beans of the Angels because they're 7-3, seven and, seven and three, I think. 7-3, and three, yep. they're sort of keeping up with the Astros, but they've won both of Otani's yep. starts. He's been the best hitter on the team. 5-1 and one in Otani games, yeah. 5-1 and one in Otani games. And- the one loss was an extra inning game, so yeah. You feel so bad. So on Sunday, they recorded attendance in Angel Stadium was 44,742. That's Otani, of course, pitching against the A's. And on Saturday, when Otani did not play, the recorded attendance was 40,129. No meaningful difference. It's 4,000 fewer people or so. But you feel bad for those 40,000 people plus who bought tickets and didn't get to see Shohei Otani at all. They showed up to see Jeffrey Marte and (laughs) JC Ramirez on the mound. But you look at where the Angels are now. Not only has Otani clearly been a huge boost, but Ian Kinsler is on the disabled list now. He's going to be back shortly. But Andrew Haney is on the disabled list with elbow problem. Doesn't They don't know when he's coming back. J.C. Ramirez was recently placed on the disabled list with an elbow problem. Matt Shoemaker was recently placed on the disabled list with a forearm problem, which is an elbow problem. So the Angels have three of their starting pitchers already on the disabled list. And that's bad. This is exactly what people figured would be the downfall of the Angels with or without Otani, but they just don't have reliable pitching health. They're Mm -hmm. already down three, not even counting Alex Meyer, who's been out for the season for a long time because of some other health problem. But the Angels have lost three starting pitchers to the disabled list and their their, uh, quality second baseman to the disabled list. And I don't know if anyone's noticed because Shohei Otani has been playing. Also Mike Trout, also Andrelton Simmons, also the others. But Otani's been there, and it's kept the Angels afloat, even though they've got three pitchers on the DL, and Parker Bridwell in his one start lasted an inning and two-thirds, allowing six runs with (laughs) three home runs allowed. ERA of 32.4. I kind of feel bad for Trout that it's taken Otani coming along to draw this attention to the Angels because Trout obviously is better. He's the best player in baseball. He got off to the best start of any career ever. So in his own way, he's as singular as Otani is and everyone should have been watching Mike Trout all this time too. And now you see Trout like in his post-game interview yesterday following a big game for Trout. He homered, he singled, he walked, he supplied a lot of the run support that Otani needed. And Trout, the first two questions he got in his post-game sideline interview were about Otani. Like, what is it like to watch Otani? What is it like to be Otani's teammate? It's kind of unfair in a way. I mean, I'm happy that people are getting to see Trout, even if he's not really in the spotlight right now. But it is sort of sad that it took this other superhero coming along to be Trout's sidekick, in essence, to, to actually draw attention to the Angels. I mean, at this point, people know who Mike Trout is. It's not like he's flying under the radar at all. He's been the best player in baseball for six years, right? Six plus, essentially. Mm -hmm. So everyone already is familiar with Mike Trout. He's had some national ad campaigns. But I wonder if Shohei Otani being on the team will, in a way, just increase Trout's exposure and make him more popular, increase, obviously, the Angels brand. But all those games that people are going to be watching the Angels, they're going to see these other players. And I I would be really interested to know, and we'll never have this data, but to see the local ratings for like TV ratings for Otani yeah. games and non-Otani games, because I wonder yep. if people are going to be paying that close attention or if they'll just be like, oh, the Angels are on. Maybe Otani's going to play and they'll just have the game on. Because I know the Angels have always played a little bit of second fiddle down there. They're still more broadly appreciated than the Padres for a variety of reasons. But, you know, They've had that little rivalry, little spat with the Dodgers, and they're not the Dodgers, but 
people are having trouble watching the Dodgers on TV and people are going to be looking for the Angels. So this is mm-hmm. going to be very good for them for on-field and off-the-field reasons. Yeah. But yeah, now Mike Trout gets to be humbled. He gets to face <laughs> all the questions about a teammate like all his teammates have been facing about him for the last six years. <laughs> yeah, I have a box of Trout-branded super pretzels in my freezer right now, and I've been <laughs> looking forward to Trout getting a, a maybe a, a sexier sponsorship one of these days, but I don't know that that's happened yet. I guess he has some others. But yeah, I've tried to get... MLB TV data, viewership data in the past, like in Vin Scully's final season, I was trying to wheedle some MLB TV data out of MLB Advanced Media to try to get a sense of like how many non-Dodgers fans were tuning in to listen to Scully or what percentage of people who were watching Dodgers games were listening to the Scully feed as opposed to the other feeds. Never succeeded in getting that data Maybe I'll try again with Otani, probably unsuccessfully, but yeah. I would love to find out the least watched game of the season. (laughs) Now, that's probably data they wouldn't want to release because they're all about promoting their own brand. But I mean, if we, okay, if you had to, if you had to guess, it wouldn't be any, it wouldn't be the final game of the season, right? For anyone, because people are going to tune in just like, we're going to miss baseball, but it would be one of the final games of the season. Yeah, probably. I assume, yeah, it, it would have to be like what a, a Marlins game or a Rays game or something after they've been eliminated, maybe mid-September with no one interesting starting September call-ups all over the lineup, that kind of thing. Okay, okay, I'm going to check this out. So the Marlins final series of the year, uh, it's against the Mets. So people are going to be, I'm looking for a total viewership on both sides. So Mets fans likely to be tuning in. So I don't think that's going to be it. But yeah. if you check out the hmm, the Reds, their final series, Pirates. That's a candidate. That's a that's a possibility there. Could be looking at the uh, the Friday game, Reds Pirates. But the Tigers close with the Bru- look. Okay, I could do this all day. I'm not going to do this anymore. But I would uh, I'd love to find out. I guess we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of where the Angels playoff odds stack up right now, even with the seven three start, they are roughly 40% to make the playoffs. Most of that obviously tied up in the wild card. So they need every run, they need every win, and that is going to make how they handle Otani more interesting. We touched on this in the last episode, but if he continues to be excellent, not one were a week excellent, but you know, hitting well, pitching well, hitting better than the alternatives, it will be really fascinating to see if they crack, if they bend it all, if they stray from their preseason rest schedule, which, frankly, maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. They have him under contract for several years. They have to consider that. They have to consider that there may be some amount of damage in his elbow, as was revealed by a report last year. Don't want to push him too hard, especially in his first season playing in the majors and all the pressure and the different ball and the different schedule and all the rest of it. So maybe they should be responsible and stick to what they're doing. On the other hand, if we get, say, halfway through the season and he's showing no ill effects and no signs of fatigue and he's been considerably better than their other options, I really wonder whether they will start pushing it. And obviously, tiny, tiny sample, but... In the Angels' 10 games so far, the Angels' 10 games so far, in the four games with Otani as DH, their DHs, namely Otani, have been worth about four batting runs above average. In the six games where Otani has not DH'd, so Pujols or Chris Young has DH'd, they've been negative three batting runs out of the DH slot. So 
tiny sample, not necessarily going to continue to be that way, but it is likely, I would say, that Otani will be better than the other hitters in those lineup slots. So you just wonder whether the temptation will at some point overcome them and maybe you just start him you know, the day after he pitches or the day before he pitches, you give him some DH activity. Maybe, maybe you consider DHing him on the days that he pitches. I don't know whether that makes any sense. It kind of depends. Like, if he continues to be as good at pitching as he has been thus far, and he continues to go deep into games, obviously they're not going to be pushing him pitch count-wise, but he got through seven innings throwing only 91 pitches in his most recent start. If he goes seven, if he goes seven regularly, then in theory, you could just sacrifice the DH slot, have him start at DH or, you know, have him hit for himself on those days and maybe end up being better because you only have to get perhaps one plate appearance out of the pitcher slot and you could just pinch hit for him and maybe it won't hurt you at all. So it's something they can consider doing. It wouldn't be a big edge or anything, but at some point it's going to be more and more tempting if he keeps up any approximation of what he's been doing so far. I wonder if the bigger struggle might even end up being the six-man rotation idea because they are already without Ramirez, Shoemaker, and and Meyer and Haney and Bridwell is not very good. And I mean, we're look, Tyler Skaggs has already had Tommy John surgery. Garrett Richards had stem cell treatment for his elbow problem, which clearly hasn't completely taken for JC Ramirez. So the Angels do not have a whole lot of rotation depth. They opened with like nine candidates, but they're already down several of them. And I would imagine that they've had a stricter schedule worked out for Otani from the beginning, saying like, we're going to keep you on a six-man rotation as much as we possibly can. But this, it's going to get hard. It could, I should say, get hard on both sides of of the game where you want him to bat more. And maybe you think, well, batting is is lower impact so he can DH. and, And maybe it's easier for them to try to squeeze out a few more at-bats there, but there could easily come a point in the year where they think, well, Otani looks fresh every game he starts, mm-hmm. and he's really good, and he's the only healthy one that we have, so let's just keep using him. And I cannot get over the fact that we're having this conversation two weeks after people are having the conversation of whether he should begin in AAA because <laughs> his spring training was so bad. Spring training doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And we fall for it every year. At least some of yeah. us do. We always yeah. look for some sort of signal. It's not there. It's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. I mean, at the very margins, if you look at the right stats, there's some signal there, but it's tough to detect. And I mean, I won't say that his tough spring training didn't make me slightly more worried or more pessimistic than I was. I mean, I think it did. Barely. I mean, I picked him to be the rookie of the year, so I I wasn't especially concerned. But, you know, my expectations coming into February were maybe a little bit higher than they were after he had a 347 OPS in spring training and a 27 ERA or whatever it was, if only because you start worrying that maybe it's just going to add to the pressure that he's facing and that's going to affect his performance in some way. But, you know, I mean, to to there's a ridiculous Mike and the Mad Dog exchange where they're talking about this shortly before opening day and saying the Yankees are lucky that they didn't get him. It's just, <laughs> just so preposterous. But I don't know. I mean, I think that the jury is still out to some extent on his hitting. We know that he has the power to be an excellent hitter. He's still 
one of only 18 players to have hit at least two balls 112 miles per hour. And he's done that in only four games as a hitter, whereas other guys have had eight, nine, ten at this point. And only Miguel Sano has the higher average exit speed among hitters with at least 10 batted balls. He hits the ball hard. We know that. I think there's still perhaps some question about how opposing pitchers will adjust to him. He has shown some willingness to swing at pitches outside the strike zone, maybe through some combination of exploiting that tendency and respecting his power. Pitchers will stay away even more than they have, and we don't know exactly how he'll adjust to that. So I think there's still some unknown. We still don't know whether he'll be a a star-level hitter. But pitching-wise, I mean, the stuff is so incredible that I don't care if it's a small sample— No one throws harder than he does. No starting pitcher. I guess Luis Severino is essentially tied to this point in average velocity. But the weapon that his splitter is is just, uh, I mean, among pitches that have been thrown at least 10 times this season, the only one that has a higher miss per pitch rate than Otani's splitter is Edwin Diaz's slider. And, of course, Edwin Diaz is a reliever. He doesn't have to throw as many types of pitches and fool guys and see guys multiple times in an outing, so he has an advantage there. It's just such a a weapon, and I just don't really feel like it's something that hitters can adjust to to that great an extent. Like, yes, it's often out of the strike zone, and so in theory— You can say, well, they can just decide not to swing. They can just recognize that it's the splitter and lay off, and it'll be a ball most of the time, which is similar to what people have been saying about Masahiro Tanaka for a few years now. And it's just harder to do than it is to say because it doesn't look like a splitter. That's the whole point. looks like a fastball. And when you throw 99 like Otani does, there's just no time to react. You have to be geared up for that. And the splitter comes in at 89, and it looks the same. It's in the same tunnel until it gets too close for comfort, and there's just no way to adjust. So I don't really see it as like, oh, hitters are going to adjust to this. I mean, to some extent, maybe, but what he's doing doesn't look to me like it's a beatable strategy. He's just too good. And he hasn't even spotted his slider. It hasn't been a good pitch for him yet, but if you look at the how the slider moves and how fast it is it is it's a Corey Kluber level slider like the movement on the pitch is fantastic and it's not just Corey Kluber there's also Marcus Stroman you Darvish these other pitchers who have really good sliders and uh and Otani has gotten under it it's it's backed up on him a few too many times it hasn't been very consistent and so he's so far been succeeding with his heat and his splitter which are obviously great but if he gets that other pitch going I mean it's just it's over there's nothing that there are a lot of players who have really good stuff, but Shohei Otani just th- took a perfect game into the seventh inning with two pitches. Yeah. And he yeah. has a third one that has the potential to be great. So, you know, that's just something to watch for. He backed away from his slider. He didn't use it a whole lot. It clearly wasn't working for him. Matt Chapman, I think, hit one pretty well early in the game that was caught by a, a retreating Justin Upton. So the, the perfect game nearly ended earlier, but he's got the slider. He... Just, I don't know if it's a, a seam thing. I don't want to say that he's still adjusting to the balls because the splitter has been so fantastic. But I remember watching Tanaka's debut in 2014 mm-hmm. and just being so excited because people were saying his splitter was one of the best pitches in the world. And it definitely looked like it. Certainly probably the best splitter in the world at that point. And mm-hmm. I was thrilled to watch him and document it. And Tanaka was throwing his fastball at 91. 
Yeah. And Otani has been blowing 100. So yeah. <laughs> it's not even a comparison. I don't know what else there is to say. You gear up for a hard pitch, and then here comes the most impossible pitch to hit in the world. <laughs> Maybe one day Otani will face a team that isn't the A's, but so far he's been good against the A's. Yeah. I, I mean, Tanaka's splitter has been a really great pitch for him, but he at times has like stopped throwing his fastball, as you've documented in various posts. Like he just realized that it was not a good pitch. It was like at one point, wasn't it like literally the worst fastball in terms of Fangraph's pitch values? And he just all but abandoned it at a certain point. I mean, Otani's fastball, it may not have an amazing spin rate relative to its speed, but it goes fast enough that coupled with his other arsenal, it it just doesn't matter all that much. So I don't know. I, I just don't foresee him, you know, assuming he's healthy, being solved by the league at any point. So Marseille Tanaka started two games this season. And uh, he's, I know nobody's paying attention to Tanaka because there's Otani, and people only have room in their heart for one Japanese pitcher, not (laughs) all of the good ones. But two starts for Tanaka, 12 and a third innings pitched, nine hits, four runs, zero walks, 15 strikeouts. But here's the best part, the absolute best part, I think. Masahiro Tanaka, through two starts, has thrown 21% fastballs. He's thrown 43% sliders and 31% splitters. Splitter rate, a career high. Slider rate, easily a career high. He's mixed in like one cutter. He's thrown a few curveballs. But his fastball rate has gone from 41% to 33 to 32 to 28 to 21%. Masahiro Tanaka's fastball, and he actually has two fastballs. So he's basically stopped throwing his sinker. His four-seamer is just there as, I don't know, a show me pitch, but we have all these conversations about pitchers who are supposed to just throw fewer fastballs and throw more of their best pitch, but not to this extent. This is like his fastball is almost dead. He just doesn't, he might as well not even have one, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I I mean, I don't want to belabor the point. I, especially among our listeners, I'm sure there's no one who's overlooking Otani or failing to appreciate the significance of what he's doing here, but. I mean, we've just never seen anything like this. Yes, it was one week of being brilliant, but we have not seen anyone do that for one week. Any week over the past century, no one has done the things that he's doing. And it's just been so much fun just to have this be appointment viewing, to have like Twitter and Ringer Slack and the Facebook group just united in watching and discussing Otani's performance when he's on the field in a way that typically those mediums are not until October, until most of the teams are eliminated and everyone's watching the same game. I feel like at this point we are all watching the same game, at least when Otani is on the field. And I will continue to as long as he keeps performing anything like this. I can't imagine getting tired of it. I guess eventually I would in the way that like, you know, as much as I love and appreciate Mike Trout, I wasn't necessarily tuning in to watch every Trout plate appearance last season. I guess by 2022, maybe I won't be watching every Shohei Otani start and plate appearance, even if he's doing what he's doing. But for now, I don't know. I I just, I haven't found any player more compelling, more entertaining, more amazing. And This is even being fully aware that this is what he's capable of. We knew this. We knew he had been the best pitcher and the best hitter simultaneously in a very high-level league. But actually seeing it happen after all the obstacles and ways that it could have gone wrong in the interim, 
is just a real thrill. So uh, this won't be the last time we talk about it, but I just can't talk about it enough. So when do you think, okay, so today is April 9th. When do you think we will, through no fault of our own slash all (laughs) fault of our own, start to take Shohei Otani for granted? What? uh, give Give me a date. Yeah, I mean, it's dependent on his performance, obviously, if he slumps, if he stops hitting or something. I guess we won't be taking his performance for granted. He just won't be having the same performance anymore. But if he keeps being like, you know, an above average, both an above average hitter and above average pitcher, even a star level, both of those things, I don't think it'll be this season. I think this whole season will be just nonstop sensation and bigger and bigger crowds on the road and ratings and the whole thing. And if he does that, then presumably he will win the Rookie of the Year award, might even be in consideration for an MVP award. I mean, if he were somehow to be even just, uh, you know, an above average player at both of these things, he'd almost automatically be an MVP candidate if he gets enough playing time. So not this season, not even beginning of next season, but I would say that by middle of next season or so, we would be conditioned enough by what Otani does that it won't necessarily be like a a live looking everyday sort of situation. Okay, so uh, next question. It looks like, I don't know exactly how things are going to shake out, but Otani's next start should come on the road against the Royals this coming weekend. (laughs) The Angels are in Texas for three games Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So if they stick to their sixth man, which they should, then Otani should start Saturday. Yeah, well, I think he's starting just once a week now. I think that's the plan, just every Sunday, according to what I read. It's just like a a weekly event. Okay, well, then we'll do that because he started last Sunday. He's starting this Sunday. So let's say he's starting this coming Sunday against the Royals. It will be the fourth game of a four-game series. The Royals have only played two home games this season. In their home opener, they drew 36,500-some people in the next game. They drew half of that. They're playing the White Sox. Not a big draw. So only those two home games. And last year, I don't know what a good comparison would be, but the Royals' first Sunday home game was, oh, it's against the Angels. And they drew just shy of 28,000 people. To, uh, to Kauffman Stadium and the Royals' final Sunday home game last season, last game of the year, drew 32,000. Try to guess the Royals' attendance for this coming mm. Sunday, assuming that's the Otani game. Will it, yeah. will it be inflated? Well, I guess you kind of have to adjust for just the Royals being sort of depressing right now and having lower expectations heading into the year than they did last year and having lost a lot of their stars and all the rest of it. So... Yeah, I would say that if you could somehow take that into account, there would be like a measurable Otani bump. I don't know that it would be enough to overcome just other reasons why people might be staying away from Royals games right now. Maybe by the end of the season, when there's been some time for Otani mania to build, the crowds might be bigger, but maybe now it's still a little early. That's one of the things I'm most curious about is just how big a crossover success Otani will be and therefore how big a crossover success baseball will be. I just know kind of anecdotally my friends and family who are not really that into baseball except to humor me are really genuinely excited about Otani. Like my wife, who is, you know, moderately interested and knowledgeable about baseball, but not a fan of any team or any player, not really going to be turning on baseball to watch it on her own, is now like 
asking me, when do the Angels play? What time does the game start? Let's watch the Angels game. And we're both like sitting there watching Otani just like giggling at every whiff. And he had 25 of those, by the way, in Sunday's game, which is something that happens so about 15 times a season. So yeah, I I don't know. I, I think he hopefully will be something of a, a mainstream success. Was there a number in there? We're looking for a prediction. You're hemming and hawing. <laughs> Attendance prediction. Uh, so you said it was 35 at the end of last season, something like the that? The end of last year. The last Sunday game was like 32. Yeah. And did you say that we have a, a data point this year yet or no? Not yet. They've only played a Thursday and a Saturday at home this year. The Saturday yeah. was the second game of the season. Maybe the best yeah. comparison. That was only 17,564. Oof. Probably well, cold, though, I'm going to guess. Okay. Well, all right. I'm going to say... If it is Otani starting, I'm going to say they get to 20. I'm going to say 20, which would be a you know, considerable boost given that it is not the second game of the season, mm-hmm. although I guess it is a Sunday. Well, yeah. So the second game of the season was a Saturday night game. It was 45 degrees, mm. windy. Okay. This is going to be a Sunday matinee, so I'm going to give you yeah. a chance to adjust <laughs> right. if you'd like to. If the weather is nice, <laughs> uh, then I will go up to 25. Five. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine the Royals breaking 30 right now. I could be yeah. wrong. I'll go 28. Okay. All right. So we will end there until the next time Otani does something and we will reappreciate him anew. By the way, just in case you depend on this podcast for your injury updates, which would be a terrible strategy if you're a fantasy player, Xander Bogarts did indeed hit the disabled list with a small crack in his ankle bone. He is expected to miss 10 to 14 days. You can support the podcast and continue to enable our Otani obsession by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and pledging some small monthly amount. Five listeners who have recently done so include Andrew Schaefer, Ben E., Greg, Nate Luscombe, and Janet Green. Thanks to all of you. I hope their support will peer pressure all of you into supporting. If Andrew Schaefer, Ben E., Greg, Nate Luscombe, and Janet Green all jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? Oh, they might know something about that bridge that you don't. In any case, the stakes are a little lower when it comes to supporting the podcast on Patreon. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, and you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. We won't steal your data any more than Facebook does by default. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. You can keep your questions and comments and complaints about how much we're talking about Shohei Otani to me and Jeff via email at podcastatfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will likely do an email episode next time. Until then, enjoy the other baseball players. They're good too. We'll talk to you soon. Why we hold on